Hello, I'm Kelly Proctor, the president of DMV Healthcare USA Incorporated. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast, RX for Hospital Quality. It's my privilege to introduce podcast host, Simile Miller. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of RX for Hospital Quality. I am your host, Emily Miller. We are continuing our series, our three-part series, on the NIHO Standard Revision for Acute Care. As most of you know, we already completed the Critical Access Series in June and July. So we've now moved on to CMS has approved the acute care, and we are now going to talk about the clinical uh, component of the standard. We've already had Clint speaking about the uh, physical environment. So that was uh, posted uh, the episode before last, if you missed that. And then recently, um, our most recent podcast, we had Nicole on speaking about the uh, generalist components. So this is the SAI team uh, who is covering this. They are the experts in all things standards related. So with that being said, Anne-Marie, thank you for joining us. You want to introduce yourself? All right. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, in case you don't know who I am, my name is Anne-Marie Pizzi. I am a clinician, an RN by trade, and I have worked with DNV for the last seven years. I've been a nurse for like four to four years, which is a really long time, and uh, have a lot of uh, background in a variety of areas. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about these much anticipated revisions to the NIHO requirements. As you all know, there were no revision since 2020, and we all know what happened that year. So uh, glad to be here and talk to you about all things new and important from the clinical world. All right. Thank you. And I do want to remind everybody, I know we spoke about this quite a bit on the last podcast. If you are wondering how you can obtain information on these NIHO revisions, an advisory notice went out in July. I believe it was July 7th. In that advisory notice are links that take you to fact sheets and also uh, historical changes with the uh, standards. And you can also get a copy of the standards uh, through the links as well in that advisory notice. If you do not receive our advisory notices, I urge you to go and sign up. You can visit dnvhealthcare.com for more information on how to get registered to be on the mailing list for those advisory notices. And if you're not clear when you get to the website on where do you go to sign that up, you can click on more information or ask a question and we will get that information to you. So with that being said, Amory, I guess let's just jump in. I know there were quite a few uh, changes. Uh, like you said, we haven't done any revisions since 2020 uh, due to to a little pandemic situation that hit us. So let's get started. I think we're going to start with um, nursing services. So what what do we have going on in that section? Okay, so uh, I'm going to put perhaps a little different spin on this podcast than maybe you heard from the generalists and the PE. And the reason is that since these have been released through the advisory notice, I have received a lot of questions into the Dropbox and remind you that's always a place where you can go when you have questions about the standards. Uh, so I figured you all have probably read the documents that Simile has referred to, and I don't need to read them to you again, um, but I figured I would go over the most significant changes along with some of the questions I received in case you all have the same questions because I've been doing this a long time and I know 
that if one person has a question, there's a good chance others do. They just were not brave enough to ask it for whatever reason. All right, so in nursing services, so in NS1, SR6, this has uh, been a source of a lot of uh, clarifications coming into me from the Dropbox because it's, it references licensed nurses and clinical staff who provide services in the hospital and that they need to follow the policies of, and procedures in the hospital. And so what's new here is really it's the clinical staff piece and what we're referring to. And as I have discovered, and thanks to you all for your feedback, I understood this requirement when it was written, but I think it has some opportunity to be a little bit more clearly stated. Uh, but in the last little sub under SR6, it talks about clinical staff under the delegation and the umbrella of nursing services. So, uh, and that includes licensed staff. And the reason we weren't very specific in what, who are these licensed staff, I'm getting questions about, is it just RNs, L, LVN, LPN, whatever you call them in your neck of the woods, but it applies again to any licensed staff in the hospital that fall under the nursing umbrella. And because every hospital has a different structure, um, it would apply to any of the staff that we would see uh, in your org chart or have the reporting structure that you would present to us. Again, it's not all disciplines of clinical staff, it's just the ones that are falling underneath the nursing services. Um, so hopefully that makes sense to you. One of the things that we've talked about behind the scenes uh, and all the SAI team is that this requirement is kind of a, a tester feeler because it comes from feedback we get from our customers as well as our surveyors about sometimes they run into situations in a hospital, but there's no real place that we have a requirement that we can write it to. And while we appreciate when you ask us to write things that get more attention if they show up on your report, we have to follow our procedures and we need requirements. So again, we recognize that there's lots of staff in the hospital. Uh, clinical and non-clinical that might not fall under this requirement, but we're kind of testing it out to see how it looks. And we do plan to add more in the future. So again, if you have questions about that, please do feel free to, to let me know in the Dropbox. It's available to you all the time. That's a very important clarification. So uh, very good questions, guys. Keep those questions coming into that Dropbox. All right. So I guess let's move on to the next section. What do you have up next? Yeah. So um, again, the only other changes in nursing service I think are kind of self-explanatory, which is we had the mishmash of assessment and plan of care all together in one chapter, but it really was problematic for hospitals and surveyors alike to make sense of what the requirements were. And again, struggling when there's an assessment reassessment problem, it didn't really fit into the chapter as it existed. So we separated them out. And so where NS3 now is specific to the care plan, what has been new and added is a reminder for everybody that you, the hospital, it's your house, they're your rules. You're the ones that decide what kinds of nursing diagnosis and comorbidities are added to that care plan. That's for you to decide. And you you develop policies and procedures around that. And that's what we survey you to. Because one of the challenges for anyone who's been a nurse, even 
half as long as I have knows that uh, what in the heck should go on the care plan? Is the care plan meaningful? So if we're going to still do care plans because they are still required by CMS and state licensing organizations, uh, we're trying to make it as clear as possible. So you decide, do you throw in everything but the kitchen sink or are these things that are specific to what the patient is in the hospital for? And um, these are not suggestions or requirements I just said, but really just for you to think about what are the important things for your population that make it to the care plan so that it's clear what the path is that all staff should be following to get them to discharge, which is always our ultimate goal. And then in NS4, which is assessment reassessment, uh, we added the reassessment piece to that because we only talked about assessments previously. And basically there's nothing new in here except we took a lot of the interpretive guidance and moved it up into the standard. So that because sometimes uh, we have found that things in interpretive guidelines are really requirements in a way. They're kind of the explanation of the vague sentence that CMS or DNV writes as a requirement. So in order to provide clarity, again, we have a lot of new organizations, a lot of new surveyors. Uh, we pulled those elements up into the uh, standard itself and you define, your hospital defines what those intervals for assessment and reassessment are at certain paths in the patient's hospital stay or inpatient or outpatient stay. You decide what the process is. We audit you to that process. So you define the intervals. We're going to hold you to it. You know, do what you say and we'll audit you to make sure you're doing what you say. That's after you documented what you do. You do what you say. Of course. Emily's favorite. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Tis the DNV way. Absolutely. All right, Amory. So then uh, what, what question are we going to next? So let's talk about surgical services. So another favorite hot topic in the Dropbox. So um, the surgical services chapter did have significant revisions. Uh, starts with the addition of the CMS definition of surgery. And that follows immediately after um, SS1 in the interpretive guidelines. And it is referred to throughout in all the areas pertinent to surgical services. So again, uh, that has been a source of questions that's been coming in, and we'll talk about that in a little while. In SS5, under available equipment, there have been some changes in there as well that are uh, more significant to small hospitals, uh, rural hospitals, uh, and we've had some hospitals that are converting or thinking of converting to critical access. And this is specific to malignant hyperthermia and the requirements for those rescue materials. So the organization is required to have whatever your uh, dantrolene medication, Ryanodex, whatever it is that you use to treat a malignant hyperthermia episode, you have to have it available to treat a full episode, and it has to be available within 10 minutes from the decision to treat. This is one of the requirements that we follow from the Malignant Hyperthermia Association uh, guidance, and it's important. And what we've added is that not only is this important for hospitals that are using the volatile uh, anesthetic agents, but it's also for those who are still performing rapid sequence intubation or delivering emergency care requiring intubation using succinylcholine, um, even if the only drug that the organization has in its uh, pharmacy or its Pixis is succinylcholine for rescue 
purposes, you're still required to have enough dantrolene to treat an episode of malignant hyperthermia. And um, what we have found, honestly, is going to some of the smaller hospitals who eliminated surgery as one of their service lines. And so in happiness, because we all know how expensive this medication is, they quickly got rid of their dantrolene, never to be ordered again until they get a visit from us. So again, it is a requirement and we do expect and uh, it really emphasizes your uh, risk-based approach to how you take care of things. It's it's something that doesn't happen often, but you don't want to be without the rescue medications if you should need it. So uh, that's in, again under SS5. And just to tail on to that, in SS1, where we talk about the required policies, there also is a policy requirement that you incorporate all the areas that use that succinicoline into your policies about malignant hyperthermia, because again, we still find hospitals that forget that OB um, is using volatile uh, anesthetics um, or that the ED is using succinicoline or maybe the ICU is using succinicoline. So they all should be incorporated into whatever policies or procedures you design for your hospital. Definitely high risk. And I know that's been a topic uh, quite a bit over the years. Yes, yes. So. Uh, the next big one is about um, the operative note. And so we did make some changes in our guidance. There's something that's a deletion that I wanted you all to be aware of, and some of you are aware of it because you've already sent me questions about it. But in case you skim over it, because there isn't um, our current process, you know, you're not aware unless you're looking at the change history document that something has been deleted. Uh, new requirements says that all surgeries, it's SR2, or invasive procedures require an operative report, a post-operative slash post-procedure note, if the operative note is not immediately available. And so again, how do we know if we need to do it? Well, you need to refer to the CMS definition of surgery in the interpretive guidance. The old requirement, just to refresh your memory, said all surgeries or invasive procedures that require anesthesia services uh, require an operative note or a post-operative procedure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if the operative note is not immediately available. So that is a change. And so just to talk about this a little bit, I, I do want to highlight a couple things. The immediate post-op note was a DNV-specific requirement, and it's something that we're thinking of retiring because what we've learned over time is the hospitals, uh, because we know how much doctors love to do something twice, um, have developed good processes where the physicians can dictate immediately. So they're in the recovery room with the patient and they're doing the full-op note, which when we talk about the full-op note, think about what you need for billing in order to get money for the procedure that they just did. And they're doing it while the patient's still in the recovery area. So um, that immediate post-op note before transfer to the next level of care is becoming less necessary. Uh, for now, we're leaving it in there because there are some hospitals um, that aren't quite there yet. But um, just so that you know, that's kind of the thought processes we have. The reason we removed the anesthesia requirements is uh, one of the benefits of doing with fresh eyes because it's new staff in the SAI department um, and looking at the state operations manual is we kind of did a line by line comparison because it's really important to us that we don't have burdensome additional requirements for you, but that we mirror and align much more 
more closely with CMS. And that's in fact what this, this is a reflection of. The next big one in SS9, and again, it's it's a big one because I feel like we sort of uh, located, you know, if you're shopping in a high-end department store and they have shoes in every department, you just want to go to the place where all the shoes are, right? You don't want to be searching throughout the store to find <laughs> where the shoes are. So um, for the informed consent, which is a big always a source of questions for everybody. All the elements for the the informed consent were moved into this chapter while some still exist in PR5, uh, but they were moved here for succinctness. And it's easier since most of the written informed consents are for something that's happening in the surgical area. And we attempted, I'm not saying we were perfect, but we tried to remove redundancy and confusion with the requirements being listed in three different places. So while we're not always successful with that, I will tell you that we feel pretty good about how we've arranged this. And we did have, and thanks to, uh, I don't want to mention the system, but a system near and dear to Simile's heart who pointed out (laughs) a floating requirement that remained inadvertently in the interpretive guidance. And I'm not even going to tell you about it because I'll give you a prize if you uh, write to me in the Dropbox and tell me that you spotted an error because I think we're giving away convertibles. Maybe it is. I, I thought it was a yacht, but it oh. might be a convertible still. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. So anyway, um, so again, uh, we, we did our best and we appreciate any feedback as always that you can give us about the standards revisions or any error errors or confusion that you think we have caused uh, by what we think is the best thing since sliced bread, since we wrote them ourselves. So, right, right, uh, right. so anyhow, that that is uh, basically under SS9. That is uh, the big deal in SS9. I, I think that's, I think it's funny that you say that because as I think sometimes people forget that um, we, our whole goal here, guys, to line as closely as we can to mirror the COPs. And sometimes, um, you know, things get missed, things get lost in translation. Uh, sometimes we find out even that we have to be a little bit more stringent because it's even in the COP, it's not clear. Um, so yeah, we love, love, love getting your feedback. Well said, Amory. Yeah. And that's, you know, and another point is that our approach is, you know, we're about continual improvement. And mm-hmm. so we will hold you sometimes to a higher standard because that's the journey that you signed up for when you decided to sign up with us because ISO is really all about using a risk-based approach. And so for things that perhaps are a little bit more stringent from a DNV perspective is because of maybe safety events or other things that have come up. And just another point, this might be a good place to just remind you, because it's one of my sayings also, is that remember these requirements, and it really doesn't matter if they're our CMS or your state Department of Health uh, licensing requirements, these are all minimum requirements. So when DNV sometimes exceeds them, you know, be mindful of that as we're, you know, it's kind of like the parent, we're looking out for you here. We don't want to see anything go south on you. It's okay to exceed those minimum requirements with caution because when you exceed requirements and you document in a procedure that that is what you do, it's a good thing. And we, we're so happy to see organizations that do go above and beyond what the minimum requirements are, but we do hold you to that. So just to be mindful of that, but requirements are really just the bare minimum. And so anything that you do over and above, uh, I'm sure keeps your patients safer. So 
Yeah, it, it's funny that you say that because know that one of the things that we've preached is where we are uh, more stringent than, let's say, the COP. Uh, it's based on evidence. So just keep that in mind for those out there that do exceed the minimum requirements. It's fantastic. But look at your evidence-based thinking. You know, what we really, really strive for is you will never see us make a change to any of our standards because someone thinks we should or someone has a feeling that that's how we should do. It's 100% based on objective evidence, what are we seeing? Are we seeing a lot of negative outcomes out there? So, or a lot of confusion because the standard just is easily misinterpreted. Uh, that's where we jump in. So we, I, we would just really invite you to look at that as well when you've decided to go down the path of being more stringent than the standard, that's always good. Uh, but is it evidence-based thinking? Exactly. And then honestly, there's been no significant changes in anesthesia services, which sort of ties in nicely with surgical services. But I am getting a lot of questions about anesthesia consents. And so just to remind everybody, there actually is not any specific requirement about needing to have an anesthesia consent in your organization. However, should you choose to do that, and it, it is a it is one of the best practices out there, but you don't have to do it, then we will survey you to whatever your policy and documented procedure requirements are to the content, signatures, et cetera. But there is no actual requirement for uh, consents for anesthesia services. But again, we use the risk-based approach, so that's up to you all. So let, why don't we skip to patient rights? Okay. Which is kind of in a chapter order, but I just want to reiterate there really aren't a lot of changes of any significance in this iteration, Rev 230, for patient rights. But you all are aware that there was a memo released, uh, and we did put out an advisory notice specific to a CMS memo talking about uh, ligature. And so, in in not a surprising way, the uh, latest memo left open a lot more questions than it provided answers to us. And we just want you to know that the next revision is facing some changes in the world of what's required under ligature and care in a safe setting. But we're not there yet because we're waiting on a series of questions that Nicole had submitted to CMS. We don't hold dinner waiting on those answers. So we know that it may take a little while for us to get the answers. And so changes, any changes that come, we're going to let you know about that. But one of the other things that comes up a lot, and it's uh, partly maybe because we have new surveyors and uh, partly because the, the way the requirement is written, and it's really one of those uh, civil rights things and talking about taglines. This is a source of angst for a lot of organizations, and it's in that non-discrimination standard. I just want to uh, say that there have been modifications in 2020 and again in 2022, I believe, to the requirements around taglines. The current requirement, and I'm going to read it to you, says, and it's part of in our interpretive guidance, says the organization is required to provide information in a language and format that the patient understands, including the provision of interpreters or communication aids for those who are deaf, blind, have limited English proficiency, or are otherwise impaired. When necessary, when necessary, the hospital should continue to provide taglines in top languages whenever they are necessary to ensure meaningful access by limited English 
proficient individuals to be accessible to covered services and programs. So again, in the past, it was required to be in a lot of the documentation, but that's not the case anymore. It's kind of going to depend on where you are and what the languages are. If, if you have English as a second language in your community. So again, it's the 15 taglines, you're free to post them, but it's not a requirement un unless you think it's necessary for those persons who come to your organization to have meaningful access to the services that you provide. All right. Well, uh, that's important information for sure. So where are we going next, Anne-Marie? So we have a couple choices here because I have a lot of uh, things to talk about in medication management, but we also have change in medical records uh, in that new chapter, MRA, and it's really about the interoperability and the uh, electronic uh, notification. Yeah, let's, so let's, let's hit the medical record. I think that's a good one. This standard in uh, MRA uh, came about because of those requirements, and that came out in between our revisions. So we've added it to the 23-0 uh, revision. And here's just an example of the question I'm getting uh, relative to that, because it talks about in there, let me just clarify first that if you don't use an electronic record or system, this requirement doesn't mean you need to go buy one and start using one. So this is really only for people who are using um, electronic uh, records, and it's about electronic notification. The question I had recently, which I thought was a good question, says, can the hospital partner with an intermediary such as a health information exchange or fondly known as an HIE, to send notifications and delegate the responsibility for identifying recipients to the intermediary. Just for clarification, the final rule does permit and encourages the use of an HIE that manages care relationships and would route notifications to the appropriate providers. The final rule also discusses a variety of methods through which the hospitals can identify recipients for patient notifications, including through partnering with those intermediaries. And so this is the approach that hospitals are currently using to identify and route those notifications to the appropriate recipients. And remember, all good deeds should go unpunished. Um, but sometimes requirements such as this can feel burdensome, but the actual intent of this is the opposite, is to reduce the operational burden to hospitals of having to hire a whole department of people that have to do those particular notifications. So uh, the hospitals are permitted to delegate responsibility for identifying the recipients that the intermediary will contact. So I hope that that clears that one up. And while we're talking about this particular requirement, MR8, it's also the only new thing in the psychiatric appendix for this uh, revision as well. And again, uh, so all hospital types and psychiatric hospitals included are held to the same requirement. So good to know. Good to know. Do we want to go into uh, the medication management and knock that one out? A couple things, again, getting a lot of questions. Uh, we did have some sorting and filtering and reorganizing some of the chapters under MM1. And again, because through no one's fault, things just sort of got combined in one chapter when they're actually separate requirements. And in particular, let's talk about uh, we moved that pharmacy review requirement up to MM1. 
one, and it's about the first dose of medication that's being administered. This is giving hospitals right now a lot of anxieties as I see a lot of questions in the Dropbox. So it, number one, it's not new. Number two, it's not required in an emergency or if the provider is there to administer. And those two situations that come to mind, obviously, would be procedurally when the doctor uh, requests a medication to be administered during procedure in an operative or procedural suite, as well as what you might see in the emergency department or even in the OB arena. So uh, hopefully that clears that up. And in most instances, hospitals have developed processes where there is some method, whether you have uh, similar to the Nighthawk for radiology, there's a lot of telepharmacy groups that are available for hospitals. And we're finding that a lot of our hospitals do have some mechanism for some sort of after hours review if it's not an emergency situation or in any of those scenarios that I have uh, described. So again, ED procedural areas are really exempt. And so hoping that that clears that up. But again, you know where I live and you can send me questions about <laughs> that. Okay. Um, the next uh, place that was changed because of that is the MM5. And I'm going out of order here, so I apologize, uh, which is after hours uh, uh, one was after hours review, um, after hours uh, medication, excuse me, access. So this is not a new standard. So there's uh, those were the two components that were previously uh, combined, and we separated out the after hours access to medications. And we do have requirements that also are really not new from a quality perspective because hospitals, number one, only designated prescribers and trained staff should be permitted access to medications. There is no requirement for a list for that, but you do uh, generally, we see hospitals designating this responsibility by job category. So like the nursing supervisor at night or the charge nurse, you know, whatever your scenario is, whatever your organization structure looks like. And then the other thing is that we do expect that you are analyzing and reviewing the types of medications that are being uh, withdrawn from these after hours places where meds can be accessed. So again, uh, looking at well, what's changing here, is, is there some process, whether it's a provider practice that's changed that's causing this need for this access to these medications after hours? Or is it something that, gee, we're seeing a lot of patients with X as a diagnosis and we need to add this as a stock medication uh, to the floor stock instead of having people have to remove those medications? And again, the expectation is you're looking at who's removing and, how, and what are the medications for all those reasons, including diversion, which is unfortunately a problem that we have. I'm going to skip around again because I'm saving the best for last in medication All management. Right. But I do want to say that we pulled out, um, and I think it was in MM1, the self-administered medications, and we've moved it into MM9. And again, uh, this is a practice that we're not seeing it like we used to. And if we see it, we might see it like in an OB unit or another scenario where the patients are on a lot of really over-the-counter medications and they are 
you know, we called them the walkie-talkies when I worked in the hospital. Uh, but these are the patients who are cognitively able to follow directions and monitor and sign for the medications, if that's your process. It's it's not as common as it used to be. So we just, we moved it out because we had a lot of stuff we wanted to put in MM1. So we needed to make room for it. So again, nothing new. We just rearranged that one. Uh, in MM2, um, there is some new information about the formulary and the addition of requirements that say you have to address the shortages and outages if that include how you communicate these shortages outages etc with prescribers and staff and developing substitution protocols while most of you have already done this it's really become front and center uh, between the hurricanes that we've had and covid and our supply chain issues. This is like just a really important process or series of processes that we need to look at and how do we manage those drug shortages and the substitution. So that that is um, in MM2 now. So I think the most common question I get, and let me see if which one I wanna talk about first. I'm going to save the best one for last. So I am getting some <laughs> questions about the USP 797 and the implementation of it and how that relates to our requirements for uh, sterile compounding. So the uh, USP 797 requirements are, we don't technically officially survey to those, but if you have policies or procedures that state you follow this protocol, that protocol, and it's documented, we do audit you to your own documented policies and procedures, and we expect that you adopt all of the guidelines and nationally recognized standards and guidelines of practice in your area of specialty. So again, those standards under sterile compounding uh, do remain now because the actual implementation date for the revised chapters in the USP 797 was November of 2023. So the, the old version is still current. Uh, but just uh, if you don't know what, what we understand they've taken out is a lot of that bedside type of compounding uh, that's been happening for years at the bedside as far as when you have to use uh, particular categories of medication, et cetera. And it really talks about the training of staff. And while a lot of what really applies under the new requirements is what's happening in the ISO boxes in the pharmacy or in their hood is separate from what I'm talking about here. And it's still a good idea with staff if they're going to be admixing and compounding that they have some sort of basic training and understanding because it's not something that all people uh, have that knowledge of. And depending on what types of packaging you have, so we're talking about a little pop off into a bag and you just shake it. I don't think you, your training is going to be that comprehensive, but bear in mind is think about what is it they're mixing, where are they mixing it and what do they, what education do they need? And again, usually OR staff, uh, very common, happens in the OR or the ED. And then uh, that's it under that one. And I am uh, happy to talk about our favorite one under MM1, which is really about those dang medications, PRN medications, assessment and reassessment, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know because you're probably going, yes, I always have questions about this. Number one, if a medication is ordered for your patient and it comes up in OB a lot that, hey, we use Motrin for our patients and it's scheduled standard dosing, 
what are the requirements about assessment and reassessment? So do we have to do a reassessment an hour after it's administered? So let me start by saying we have a requirement that says the patient has a right to pain management. You have the policies and procedures that tell us how you do that. So if your policy requires it, then yes, it is required. But if your policy doesn't require that kind of reassessment after administration for standard medications, which is pretty much what we see across the country, then it is not a requirement. Again, unless you make it a requirement, it is not a requirement. So it's up to you. You can make that a requirement and we'll survey you to what you say um, you will do. The second thing about pain medications is our another favorite um, nonconformance, and that's really why I think I hear about it a lot, is that the nurse administers less medication than is actually ordered for that particular patient. And why isn't that okay? And GR uh, State uh, Board of Nursing says that nurses have that discretionary power. In general, uh, to our knowledge, most nurses without prescribing authority don't have that ability or authority to make decisions about dosing. But what can happen for those scenarios would be something, and again, what I'm going to say is just ways hospitals have approached it, but it's not the way you need to do it. You can build into your order and people say, does it have to be in order? Can it be a policy? Well, no, it has to be in the order or in a medical staff approved protocol that's part of the order detail that perhaps you can hover over the order detail and see that background policy that says it's okay for the nurse to do that. So for instance, let's say you have a couple orders uh, for your patient to be managed with Percocet. Maybe one is for one tablet for mild pain and the other one is for two tablets for severe pain. So let's say for moderate pain, they have Toradol ordered. Nurse assesses the patient um, and the pain is assessed at a severe, which is typically seven to 10 in most hospitals across the country. And she says to the patient, hey, I'm getting you your Percocet. And the patient says, well, I only want one. So now it looks like the nurse is giving less medication than is ordered for the pain that's built into the order. So the order could say instead may administer the lowest effective dose or may administer lower dose at patient request. And so, again, we're talking specifically about nurses being able to administer less based on the really it's on the patient's own requirements or requests. And it's okay to build that into your orders. And that's not the only way we're seeing it done. So I encourage you in your networking group to talk about this. In fact, I have an invite to talk to them today about this same very thing, but know that you can build it into the order um, that it is acceptable to administer the, the lowest effective dose or may administer less medication at patient's request. And again, it just has to be in the order form. It shouldn't be nurses without prescribing authority making those decisions. So that's pretty much the biggest question I always get about those PRN medications. And again, when it's standard dosing, scheduled dosing, you're given Motrin, ibuprofen every six hours for your OB patient, you don't need to have a pain scale included in that because it's standard dosing. It's not it's not medication you're giving because, you know, in response to a pain or anything else. It's medication you're giving 
to actually help pre prevent the patient from having pain. So I hope that that's cleared some of those things up, but you guys know where I live and I welcome any questions that you have for me to the Dropbox. So that wraps it up, Sim. All right. Lots of information, but I really like that you're doing it in a way in which addresses common questions that you're already receiving to the Dropbox. So thank you for that. Any last thoughts, comments on anything else, Anne-Marie, that we need to mention? So again, just to remind you all, we are open to any of your suggestions or concerns about the, the requirements that we've had, or uh, we also invite you to provide us feedback about uh, any suggested future revisions that are based on evidence, science, et cetera, and all things legal and good, because we we understand the world is evolving and changing as, as healthcare is. And if there's things that are more pertinent or more of a best practice that you think we should be incorporating, we are open to hearing about that from you because we really do. Uh, we want to make our partnership with you, something that really will continue you along that continuous improvement. And we don't want to be burdensome in our requirements. So thank you for listening to me. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to your wonderful Dropbox questions. And I say that I mean that you guys ask the best questions. So thank you for that. My favorite is when you guys ask questions that stump them and they have to come together as a group and have a discussion. So uh, yeah, keep those questions coming. And, you know, Remember, uh, if you want some further more in-depth on common revisions that took place in both the critical access and the acute care standard, you can go back and listen to the critical access podcast uh, that came out in June and July. But for those who wanted that more specific information, such as Amory gave on uh, this podcast, you have uh, this acute care podcast. So make sure that you are also listening to Nicole and Clint's podcasts that were previously um, posted on this series because they do overlap. I don't know if you've noticed that. We tend to say physical environment requirements, generalist requirements, and clinical requirements, but they do overlap. They all uh have some role in playing when it comes to surveying those. So it is important uh, that an organization uh, listen to all three components so they get a full view of the requirement revisions. With that being said, everyone, I want to remind you to please, please, please take care of yourselves. Please be safe. And until next time, I want to thank you guys again for joining us. Thank you for listening. Rx for Hospital Quality is a podcast produced by DMD Healthcare USA Incorporated. To learn more about subjects covered here or to download any of our standards or requirements, please visit our website at www.dnbhealthcare.com.